We are in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 12. However, to, to begin with, we're going to be in John 17. So we could go ahead and turn to John 17, and let's look to God in prayer. Father, how we do thank you that uh, you have promised that you lead your people. And Father, we, uh, we certainly uh, make our own plans and go in our own direction. But Father, we thank you that you lead us and correct us in our path when necessary. And you have a perfect plan that you are leading us in. Bless our study and our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night in which, or before our Lord went to the cross, he led his disciples in the Passover meal. And in the midst of that crucial evening, I mean, it's Passover, that is very significant to them, but Jesus knows he's going to be arrested in just a few hours. He's going to be on the cross the next day. This is his last moment before the crucifixion to really have a close, intimate time with those disciples. And so he shares tremendous truth with them. You have it in John uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and so on. Uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, teaching that he gave. But um, in the midst of that, he prayed to his father out loud. And they heard what Jesus prayed. And as they listened to him pray, one of the requests that he made was not just for them, but for us too, because a couple of verses after this request, uh, he says, and Father, I pray not just for those that you have given me, the disciples, but for all who will believe uh, through their name. So that includes us. This prayer was for us. And, and, and the verse I want us to look at in preparation for Proverbs is John 17, verse 17. And it is uh, just a, a very significant verse. He prays to the Father, sanctify them. The them would include the 12 disciples, but as I mentioned uh, a few verses later, it refers to include us as well. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And uh, what is sanctification? Well, it's, it's separating someone for, for God's use. And then a step further, uh, sanctification uh, is making us like Jesus Christ in our words and thoughts and actions and so on. In other words, the moment of our salvation, we are a new creation in Christ, and our sins are forgiven and all those wonderful things, but between then and when we go to heaven, he is doing a construction job in our life, making us like himself, and that is this sanctification. Well, what is, what is used, what's the tool that God uses for that sanctification? Sanctify them in the truth. Then look how he defines the truth. Your word is truth. The truth that God uses 
in order to shape us and sanctify us and work in our lives, making us like himself, is the word of God. And just every part of scripture is part of this. And we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, every scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. And it's all part that God is using for that construction in our lives. Certainly the gospels are very significant because they show us so much about our Lord and Savior. The epistles, which are full of doctrine, we need doctrine in order to to be adding to that construction. And then the whole Old Testament is just teaching us so much about God's plan and God's work and so on. But in particular tonight, as occasionally we're doing on Wednesday nights, we look at one of those Old Testament books, the book of Proverbs. And I was just struck today thinking about this. What a what a unique book the book of Proverbs is for this construction project. Because in the epistles, we have so much wonderful doctrine, who God is, and all about salvation and so many great subjects. And boy, do we need that. But you come to the book of Proverbs, and it is one practical thought after another that God wants us to know to know, in order to glorify him in everyday living. And so, for instance, tonight uh, we're going to see one about handling money and possessions. There's going to be one about making plans. There's going to be one about the decrees of our, of our rulers that we live under and one about our business ethics and so on. So each one, uh, usually each one, is a, is a very different subject. Now, sometimes there are two or three that do lump together, but uh, uh, we've been seeing these as we've been going through the book very slowly. Uh, there's no rush. We have all the time until the Lord comes, whenever that's going to be. And uh, so we are looking at them. Tonight we're in Proverbs 16, verses 8 through 12. So in honor of God's word, would you stand as I read verses 8 through 12? Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not send in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his word, are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as I've mentioned in the previous studies, the titles of the individual Proverbs are not original with me. They are adapted from a book, The Wisdom of Proverbs, by Bob Beasley. Uh, many are word for word that he uses some. I make changes and adapt somewhat. First of all, tonight we have in verse 8, seek righteousness before riches. Look at verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness. By little, he's talk, it's going to be obvious he's talking about money. 
He's talking about possessions. And of course, our sinful nature is always pushing us to have a lot. That's the American way, right? Get more, more money and more possessions and more material things and more fame and more, more, more. That's, that's our culture, but that's also something that our sinful nature is pushing us in. Don't settle for less. Seek for more. But God's word teaches us that a lot is not always the best for us. Turn over to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, and Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have uh, revived your concern for me. They had, uh, Paul's in, in some, uh, some uh, trials and he's been arrested and so on. And, and the Philippians had sent him a financial gift to help him. And so he says, you have, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, look at this, I have learned at whatever situation I am to be content. That is a huge lesson to learn in our Christian life, especially when we have a society that is constantly pushing us to not be content, but to want more. And Paul says, this is something I, this is part of the construction that God has been doing in my life is teaching me uh, contentment. Uh, Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says a verse that I, I know we all know, and I know I have taken it out of context. Maybe you have too. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a wonderful verse, and I have used that. I remember when I was uh, in junior high and having PE and having to run some long distance, and I wasn't used to that. And I remember quoting that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can run, you know. Well, uh, certainly there's application to that, but... The context is, I can do everything, including getting by with little, if that's what God wants me to do. A very, very important lesson. So God's word teaches us that a lot is not always the best for us. Are you contented because you don't have more things? There's more that you want. Learn to rely on God's promises and Christ's power to help you be content. Our reaction is, learn to depend upon God's power to give me more. But the lesson here is, learn to depend upon God's power to be content with what he has supplied. Ask God to teach you contentment in every situation. He will provide your needs in a way that he knows is best for you. That's the promise of scripture. Another thing to consider, God's word teaches us that longing for a lot of material things 
is very dangerous spiritually. Turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness. Praise God for that statement. I think we can all say amen to that. There's great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. There is the danger of, of this philosophy of wanting more and more and more. The desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, that's a trap, into many senseless and harmless desires. Look at this, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That can be physical ruin and destruction, but it also definitely is spiritual ruin and destruction. And then verse 10, very well-known verse, but also sometimes misquoted. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so God's word teaches us that this longing for material things is very dangerous spiritually. Well, turning back to uh, Proverbs 16 verse 8. He says, Better is a little with righteousness. Now, think about Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus in the Gospels? Jesus was on his way to Jericho, and there was a tax collector. The tax collectors in, in, in Israel, Jewish tax collectors, were considered by other Jews the scum of the earth because they were in cahoots with the Roman oppressors. And Rome hired them to collect taxes and said, now you're going to owe Rome this much, but you can charge as much as you want and make yourself rich. Just give Rome our part. And boy, did they do that. And uh, Matthew, one of the uh, disciples that Jesus called, was a tax collector. And that's part of, uh, part of his uh, testimony. But there was also this guy, Zacchaeus, and he's short, wanted to see Jesus, climbed into the tree, you remember, and Jesus called out to him, say, Zacchaeus, he couldn't believe, how does he know my name? Calls Zacchaeus and says, come down, I'm going to your house today. Can you imagine how shocked Zacchaeus was? And um, in that encounter, Zacchaeus came to salvation. He repented of his sin and trusted Christ. How do we know that? Well, uh, here's this man who uh, took advantage of people and he thought it's okay because you would be rich that way. But when he met Jesus, he learned the opposite. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, verses 8 and 9. Luke 19, 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
Notice right away he calls him Lord. He knows who he is. He's God. He is the Lord. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. When you change a person's bank account like that, you know they've had a change. I mean, for this man, where money was his God, to then just say, uh, right away from the start, I'm giving half of it away to the poor. And then he says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore to them fourfold. So between giving half to the poor and then giving four times as much as he had cheated people out of, uh, he's giving away a lot of money and a big chunk of his money. But it showed that he had been changed on the inside. So turning back to uh, Proverbs 16.8, Zacchaeus put this into practice. Now, I don't know that he was thinking in those terms, but uh, this is Proverbs 16.8, better is a little with righteousness. When we get to heaven... Maybe we'll have some time to talk to Zacchaeus and find out, you know, exactly how little he had left and praise God with him for what God had done in his soul. Then, he, then, then verse 8 continues, so that's better to have a little with righteousness than great revenues, great money, great possessions, and so on, with injustice. That is, to have this money and these possessions that is acquired dishonestly, like Zacchaeus had done, or by oppression. And someone who does that uh, gets their money from, from uh, dishonestly and by oppression. Uh, their lust for money and possessions reveals their true allegiance. It reveals what their heart is really like. Turn over to Matthew. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Matthew recorded this with his background. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, 19 through 21. 6.19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where, rust, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's the key, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so uh, this, this whole issue is, is showing that uh, this love for possessions and money shows your true allegiance. And then go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Basic principle there, that God wants to build in our lives. Um, there is a commentary on Proverbs by Robert Alden that uh, he wrote this, wealth that is acquired through dishonest means results in at least two problems, a bad conscience and fear that one's dishonesty will be exposed, resulting in shame and poverty. Proverbs says it is far better to have a little than they have much accompanied 
by guilt and fear. So what, what is your attitude towards money? What does that show about your relationship with God? Who is your master? Who is the boss in your life? Is it material things? Or is it the Lord? Matthew 6.33, wonderful statement of our Lord. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So this proverb is very important for us, to seek righteousness before riches. Second proverb tonight is in verse 9. Don't worry, God is in control. A lot of us worry, and uh, worry, uh, well, first of all, worry is sin, and uh, we, need, we need this verse. The heart of man plans his way. We're very good about dreaming, about what we would like to do. We make goals, we make plans, and sometimes our plans go exactly as we wanted, but other times they wind up in a disaster. You know who I thought of as I was uh, thinking through this that came to mind is Jonah. Remember Jonah, prophet of God? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, happened to be a big enemy of Israel. A very, very aggressive, militarily strong uh, foreign power. And they were also very wicked. And God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach and call them to repentance. And um, Jonah knew God's character and that if they repented, God would have mercy on them and, uh, and spare them. But God's message was of judgment. If you don't repent, you will be destroyed. Well, you'll remember that uh, because Nineveh was Israel's enemy and uh, Jonah uh, didn't like the fact they had a, a, a had a, a reputation for treat, treating other people so brutally that Jonah didn't want to go and preach to them because he didn't want to see God spare them. He wanted them to be judged. And he didn't want them to experience God's mercy and forgiveness. So you know what Jonah did? He came up with a plan, part of the plans of man came up with a plan that he would find a ship. Uh, he, he was not too far from the Mediterranean Sea where ships would come and then uh, load up to go to other parts of the Mediterranean world. And he would find a ship that was going as far away from Nineveh as would be possible in a boat. And that place was a place called Tarshish. It was on the other end of the Mediterranean, Spain, Portugal, that area on our maps today. And you know the rest of the story. God summoned a big storm. And to the point where these experienced sailors thought they were all going to die. And you know the story about how they they cast lots to say, who's responsible for this? And, and it was Jonah. And of course, this was God's doing. And uh, so Jonah was thrown overboard. God prepared the storm, but God also prepared the great fish that swallowed Jonah. And you remember the rest of the story. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. 
what a terrifying experience. I mean, it would have been dark and uh, scary, and the gastric juices are doing their work on his skin. And then God caused that great fish to spit him out on the land. Happened to be pretty much close to where he started from. In other words, close to Nineveh. And Jonah got the point. God wants me to go to Nineveh. So my point in telling that is in relation to this verse, that Jonah, in the heart of the man, and in the heart of this man, Jonah, he planned his ways. And uh, this verse then has some words to say about that. A person like Jonah and a person like us, we plan our ways. But God, see the next word there in, in verse 9, the heart of man plants his ways, but the buts are always interesting in Scripture. They bring a big contrast, a big change. Here's a big one. God is sovereign, and he overrules man's plans. And that certainly happened with Jonah, and it happens over and over again. It happens with us, and I I praise God that it has happened with me. I hope that you can praise God that it has happened with you. And he says, but the Lord establishes his steps. Steps refers to our course that we're going in our life, the way that we have planned. And uh, so in in talking about uh, this establishing steps, in verse 3, in one of our previous studies, we saw commit your way to your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. He uses the same word there. And we are told in verse 3 that as we make our plans, we are to roll them on the Lord. That we saw when we studied it, that's the meaning behind the word commit. It's to roll our our plans on the Lord. Just like in Psalms, there's a verse where it says, commit your way, commit your burdens to the Lord. It's the idea, roll your burdens onto the Lord. Well, here, roll our plans uh, onto the Lord. And uh, he has promise. We're not supposed to to make our plans and then as an afterthought, ask God to bless what we're planning. But he says, roll your plans on to me, depend upon me. And he promises that if we do that, he will lead us in the way he has promised. So here in verse 9, God tells us that as we work out our plans, and take steps to fulfill them, God will direct them. So we have two two directions here. One, we make our plans. But secondly, we trust him and he directs our plans. Sometimes it's exactly fulfilling as we plan, but many, many times it's different, and it's different for a reason. So God will direct our path. He will either prosper our plans or he will redirect our plans or he will stop them altogether. Either way, God is accomplishing his plan, putting us in the direction that he wants us to go. And so God's plan takes into account things that we don't know. Praise God for that. 
because we don't, uh, for instance, we don't have foresight. We don't see all the things ahead that God sees and knows and plans. Uh, we don't make good choices, to be honest. Often, we don't make good choices because of our sinfulness. And so often, we don't want what God has planned. That was the case with Jonah. He didn't want what God had planned, that he would go and preach to Nineveh. But God, and it's a good thing he did, redirected Jonah's plans. There's other people that we see this working with in in the Bible. For instance, David. David thought he was simply going to go on an errand to take some, some, some food to his brothers who were part of the Israeli army fighting the Philistines. God directed his path. He winds up one-on-one battle against Goliath. And God gives him the victory. And that starts the path of David to become the king. God directed his path. Uh, There's King Xerxes in the book of Esther. He couldn't sleep one night. Uh, He had his plans, and uh, he had a good friend of his, an official in the government called Haman, and he was all for Haman's plans, but uh, King Xerxes couldn't sleep. And lo and behold, he asked, bring me the, the... what in the United States we would call the congressional record. You know, that's a, that's a, a record that's published every day of what the Congress does, and it's pretty boring reading. He said, send me this of, of my kingdom, and I'm looking for something that will put me to sleep at night. And lo and behold, the very part that was read told of something that a godly man named Mordecai had done. And, and it won't take time to go over the whole story, but you can read it in the book of Esther's, wind, wound up saving the whole Jewish nation. God directed his plans. His plans was, oh, I'm going to sleep tonight. And then tomorrow we'll be working with Haman, and God completely redirected his steps. There's Onesimus. He was a slave. Uh, We read about him in the New Testament book of Philemon. He was a slave in a city called Colossae. His master was this man, Philemon, who was a believer. And Onesimus said, I'm tired of being here, a slave to Philemon. And he ran away. His plan was to get as far away from Philemon as he could. God directed his steps. He winds up in Rome, and he winds up meeting Paul, and Paul leads him to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes a born-again child of God, and he winds up returning to Philemon, a brother in Christ. Talk about God directing steps, and God did. There's Philip in the book of Acts who was preaching to large crowds in Samaria. God was doing great things, and then God redirects him to a different place to talk to one person, just the Ethiopian eunuch, who just happened to be returning from Jerusalem, happened to be reading the book of Isaiah, happened to be reading chapter 3 about the prophecy of the Messiah, and he's asking himself, what's this about? And here comes Philip 
And Philip explains it to him, he comes to salvation. Philip didn't plan to do that. His plans were directed to keep on going in Samaria. But God uh, redirected his his plan. So our prayer should be, uh, turn over to Psalm 119, the, the great 119th Psalm and the 133rd verse. And all these verses in Psalm 119 talk about the word of God and God's work and so on. In Psalm 119, 133, we have a wonderful statement, the first line, keep steady my steps according to your promise. That should be our our prayer. I like how it's translated in the Legacy Standard Bible. Establish my steps in your word. That should be our prayer. Therefore, we should always remember, don't worry. Trust God. Sound like a good New Testament verse? It is. Philippians 4, uh, 6 and 7. Uh, you know it. You've heard it many times. Don't, a paraphrase is, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Then we have a third a proverb tonight. The king should weigh all the facts and research a just decision. Now, in verses 10 through 15, we have a set of proverbs. Each one is, is unique, um, but they, they kind of fit in a set that are proverbs about ideal kings. And they find their ultimate fulfillment not in the earthly king of Israel, but in the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Messiah that uh, would be coming. And the word Lord could be used in in place of the word kings when you're reading that, uh, when you're reading this verse uh, in your Bible study reading Proverbs. Uh, and, and it would be a good application of what these verses are talking about. They are a demonstration of Christ's character. Look at verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of a king. Now, what is an oracle? We don't use that word very much in England. In English, you hear about the, in, in ancient uh, Greek uh, writings and so on, about the oracle of Delphi. And then you have the uh, oracle, word oracle in the Bible several times. An oracle is a message from God. And so this is saying that when the king speaks officially, he speaks for God. He speaks on behalf of God. And so it's a promise to Israel, that God made to Israel, that he will make known his will for Israel through the earthly king. Uh, Proverbs 21.1, we're not going to turn there. Eventually we'll get there to study it. Wonderful verse. Talks about as, as the waters, as you change the course of water, so God changes the heart of the king. Uh, in California, where I grew up and lived until a few years ago, uh, we have some areas of great agriculture that are also very much desert. 
And I spent two summers in one of those places, got up to 120 degrees every day during the summer and so on. But it's great. It's kind of the breadbasket of California. And the first summer I was there, I lived with a family who owned a farm. And a big, big deal for Mr. Worthington was dealing with the water because you couldn't, it wouldn't rain there, certainly not in the summer. And so they got water via an aqueduct that came from the Colorado River. And then he would be told on which days he could turn the valves on his property. And it would then send the water down his ditches in the midst of his fields and water. And so just like Proverbs 21.1 talks about as someone who is turning the valves that determine is the water going to go in this ditch or this ditch that's what god does in the heart of the king and this verse is fitting along with that an oracle is on the lips of a king and note god's instructions in the old testament to the kings of israel for instance the kings of israel were to make a personal copy of god's law and study it thoroughly and regularly that is in the law before they ever had a king. So when you have a king, he is to hand write a copy. Does not just supposed to take someone else's copy. He's to hand write a copy of the law and meditate on it. Secondly, every aspect of the king's rule was to conform uh, to God's word. And then thirdly, since the kings weren't perfect, they were to call out for God, to God for wisdom. Solomon did that. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. But back to verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. So this oracle is on the, on the lips of the king. Now the individual king may be corrupt and sinful, but God is in control. And he can even use such rulers to speak his truth and accomplish his purposes. Great example of that is the heathen king Cyrus, king of Persia. We won't read it, but in Isaiah 44:28, Cyrus makes a decree uh, for for the people that affects the people of Israel. He was he was the conqueror of of Israel, and his word went, and he made a proclamation, letting the Jews go back to the promised land. He was an instrument of the king in his oracle, even though he was godly and was not a man of God by any means. Now, that doesn't mean, the fact that God does this, doesn't mean that there will never be decrees that believers should not obey. Uh, When the king or president or Supreme Court or whoever uh, decrees something that is contrary to God's word, we are not to obey that. We are to obey God rather than man. You have several examples of that in the book of Daniel. With Daniel, remember, and uh, to the point where he was thrown in the lion's den for refusing to obey the king's edict that he stopped praying, knowing that's not what God wanted him to do. And you had the same kind of thing with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, ordered to bow down and worship an idol. And then in the book of Acts, 
in Acts 4, 19 and 20, in Acts 5, 29. You have cases where the early Christians were being told by the leaders to shut up about Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. So do realize that. But continuing in, in, in verse 10, his mouth does not sin in judgment. Now, you know, the Old Testament, of course, is written in Hebrew, not in English, and we are dealing with translations. Sometimes there are verses where translations differ, where uh, the translators, you know, see different ways it should be translated. Um, certainly a no place of crucial doctrine uh, do does that come into play? But there are some verses where, where that it does come into play, and this is one of them. And I find it interesting that the New American Standard Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, the Net Bible, all of these are very good translations. They translate it should not instead of does not. So Let's see what what that does in the verse. The, but his mouth should not sin in judgment. It seems to me that is is a clearer explanation of what's going on here. I would not be dogmatic on that, but it seems to me. And so, therefore, this verse doesn't guarantee that a king won't make a sinful judgment or a sinful decree. But it warns the king to, to guard against it. Now, this is a warning to the king. Don't, don't, don't make a sinful judgment. Make sure your judgment is in accord with what God wants and his holy uh, character. Now, ultimately, the only king who can fulfill this 100% is our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to a prophecy of Christ in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. 1 to 5. Great prophecy of Messiah that is quoted in the New Testament. And Jesus actually read the scripture, uh, the scripture and said that this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. David was the descendant of, of Jesse, the son of Jesse. By the time of Isaiah, David's family has been devastated. And it's like they've been cut down to a stump. There's not, not much left. But there's going to come a shoot from that that family of David where they're no longer on the throne, they're in poverty. That was the situation of Joseph and Mary and the rest of David's descendants. There shall come a shoot from the stump of David, of Jesse, and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, 
and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See in there, prophecy about Messiah being wise, being full of the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and so on. Jesus Christ is the one king who fulfills this command in Proverbs to a T. And uh, so it's a great reminder to us to rely upon our king's word. He, his word is reliable. Now, in way of application of this proverb, the New Testament uses the word oracle or oracles several times. For instance, in Romans 3.2. And Paul, we're not going to turn there, but just to refer to it. In Paul's explaining the sinfulness of every person and explaining our need for the gospel. He talks about to the Jews were, were given the oracles of God. And so he, he's, by using that term, Paul is saying that the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God, referring to the entire Old Testament. That gave the Jews a great privilege and a huge responsibility because they were entrusted with the oracles of God, the very words of God. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Stephen, in his sermon before he is stoned to death, says Moses received living oracles. doesn't just use the word oracles, but he puts living in front of it. In other words, living would speak of powerful. They're not dead letters. The word of God is powerful. What a privilege we have to read and meditate on God's oracles and then to proclaim them to those who don't know Christ and to teach those who do know him using the very oracles of God. Well, we're running out of time, so I think we will close there. Pick up the other proverbs we planned for tonight another time, but let's let's just bring this to a conclusion with some application. In in verse eight, are you seeking righteousness more than riches? Remember Matthew six thirty three: Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. And if you find in searching your heart that you are seeking riches over righteousness, confess that to the Lord and begin to to concentrate on trusting him instead of your riches. And even seeing if God would have you give some of those riches to others that are in need. Then the proverb in verse 9, don't make your plans as an afterthought and ask God, and then as an afterthought, ask God to bless what you're planning to do. But trust him, and as you do, rest in the knowledge 
that he will prosper your plan or redirect it or uh, stop it to accomplish his greater plan. And make Psalm 119, 133 your prayer. Establish my steps in your word. And then don't worry. Trust him. And then the third proverb in verse 10. Pray that our leaders would guard against speaking lies. Because we all know that they do. Um, from time to time, some more than others. Our king's words, that is Christ's words, the Bible, are, are true, and they are the living oracles. And so make sure we're spending time meditating on his words, the living oracles, and proclaiming them to others. Well, these are wonderful, wonderful guidelines for our life. But let me also say that the only way you can see God work in the ways this is talked in your life is if you have come to salvation. And the Bible says that we are born into this world sinners. And that unless we repent of our sin and trust in Christ, God has not promised to bless us. In fact, judgment is coming. But these promises are for the child of God. And so anyone listening who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, these verses I pray, would be used of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to our heart of our need of a Savior from our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, all 66 books, and including the book of Proverbs, that so often we neglect. But Father, we pray that these Proverbs we have seen tonight would take root in our hearts and bless them to our hearts tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.